The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn in your scriptures, please, to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing in in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, reading through to verse 20. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, this is the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We ask now your blessing upon your word. As your word is unto us a mirror, a reflection of Christ, and a reflection of our own sinfulness, we ask you, almighty God, be pleased, Father in heaven, to speak to us words of truth. May you guide my mouth. And may you guide all our ears and our hearts that we might hear what your Spirit has to say unto us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if we look back in Matthew's Gospel, we'll see that our Lord has come, chapter 4, verse 17, preaching the kingdom of heaven. Uh, chapter 4, verse 23 following, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew is very focused in Christ's ministry on the kingdom of Christ. And chapter 5, he's begun this long sermon, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, which is principally about the king his kingdom, and the righteousness found within the kingdom. The king, his kingdom, and the righteousness found therein. And we've seen in in verse 2 to verse 12, our Lord has taught about the character of kingdom citizens, what it is like to be a member of the kingdom. Moving on from character, verse 13, he then speaks about kingdom conduct, our behavior. What is the Christian to be like in society? The Christian is to be like salt and light. But who gets to define what salt and light look like? Who gets to define the standard of righteousness required in the kingdom? Of course, it's God himself. And that's what Christ is going to do, really, from verse 17 of chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 7, verse 14. He's going to define the standard of righteousness. 
How is kingdom conduct measured? It's measured in righteousness, adherence to the law of God. But righteousness is not simply about ethics, about behavior, about conduct. Because our Lord tells us not only is it about conduct, but he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. So righteousness has everything to do with kingdom entry, that is, salvation. And so our Lord is speaking to us now in these verses of two kinds of righteousness. Two kinds of righteousness. How do we get into the kingdom? And then what should my conduct be like while in the kingdom? In other words, he's talking about saving righteousness, justifying righteousness, and then practical righteousness. And the questions, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven, and how do I behave when I'm in the kingdom of heaven, really has one simple answer in this narrative. Christ says, look unto me. Look unto me. I have come to fulfill all righteousness, and thus provide a way for the sinner into the kingdom of heaven, and then to show the sinner how to behave while in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, our Lord is describing a saving righteousness and a practical righteousness. Firstly, if you like, a righteousness before God, and then secondly, a righteousness to be practiced. That's what our Lord is speaking of in these verses and then opening up in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing he's speaking to us of is a righteousness before God, a saving righteousness before God. Remember, our Lord's talked about kingdom character, beatitudes. He's talked about kingdom conduct. We ask the question again, who defines the conduct of the kingdom? And those of you who know anything about gospel life at the time of Christ will know that kingdom conduct was a thoroughly compromised idea. When we're talking about the standard of conduct, we're talking about righteousness. We're talking about, as our Lord says in verse 17, we're talking about law and prophets. The righteousness described therein by our Lord, expressed in the word of God. Now, given the circumstances and the environment in which our Lord was ministering, and frankly, given our continued need and our sin, is it not vastly important to us today that we hear this truth? Christ is teaching us about a righteousness which will save us. And then he teaches us, having been saved, how we are to behave righteously. If one possesses justifying, saving righteousness, there will be a change in our conduct. So verse 17, our Lord begins this teaching on the issue of law and on the issue of righteousness. And notice the first thing he does is correct a misconception a misconception with respect to his own life and his own ministry. He says, verse 17, do not think, do not think 
I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill. Do not think. Do not think he's correcting a common misconception with respect to Messiah's role with respect to righteousness. We're going to see this idea of correcting right throughout the sermon, chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said of those of old, but now I tell you, something's gone wrong in the transmission of the law of God. And our Lord has come now to correct that misconception, that transmission. And we don't have to look far in the Gospels for us to see the problem with respect to the standard of righteousness. We just turn the pages of the Gospel and we come to the Jewish authorities and we see the rampant legalism of those who were in power and in authority in Israel. Legalism, adding to the word and commandment of God. And yet with that legalism comes also what we call an antinomianism against the law. Legalism adding to the word of God, antinomianism taking from the word of God. We see that both in the Jewish authorities. We see it in their teaching that they added to the word of God in some areas and detracted from the law of God in other areas. Particularly one area they did this was in the externalization of the law of God. They said, we can do what we want inside, we can think how we want inside, as long as we don't infringe the law with our external person, our hands. Jesus says, I've come to correct this idea. I've come to correct it. And he does so by focusing upon the law and the prophets. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does he mean when he says the law and the prophets? Well, that's a well-known saying in the time of Christ for the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, We're going to see that language again in Luke 16, in Luke 24, The law and the prophets represent the entirety of the scriptures that the Jews had at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to them, the whole of the Old Testament reveals righteousness. And it reveals righteousness in different ways. In laws, in prophecies, in types. In shadows, even in promises, there is a righteousness revealed. Christ is going to say, actually, in fact, I am revealed because I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. It's as if Christ is saying, my coming and my ministry are not about abolition, but about fulfillment. We understand what abolition means, don't we? It's to do away with something. It's To bring an end to the rule, the function, the cause, the necessity for something. When something is abolished, it's over and it's done with. Christ has said, I have not come to abolish. Really very important for us. I have not come to abolish the righteousness testified in the law and the prophets. In fact, he'll say in verse 18, the conditions in which the law will end. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, the smallest parts of Hebrew writing, 
They will not pass from the law until all is accomplished. But that leaves us with the question, does it not? We in the New Covenant era here today have not parts of the Old Testament law passed away. If Jesus said, I've not come to abolish but to fulfill, why is it that certain elements of the Old Testament law most certainly have passed away with the coming of Christ? Remember, the Old Testament, it's filled with what? Types, shadows, promises, all different kinds of law. We can say most certainly the types, the shadows, and the promises are indeed fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can even say that many of the laws of the Old Testament are also fulfilled in Christ and no longer in place. Our confession uses the term abrogated. They are abrogated. We can think in the Old Testament of different kinds of law. There's what we call the moral law, the Ten Commandments. There's the civil law, There's the ceremonial law. The civil law was about how Israel as a nation was governed. What were the laws that governed the nation as a theocracy under God? We have to say in the New Covenant, the practice of those civil laws is most certainly abrogated in the New Covenant. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, the obvious example we always think of uh, that's the law where it says if you have a flat roof in your ho- on your home, you must always build a wall around the flat roof so that if anyone goes up onto the flat roof, they may not fall off. The law there was telling the people of Israel they had a duty of care to people who entered their home. Now, that's no longer a binding law upon us, but the principle continues. Is it not true that we also have a duty of care to people who enter our homes? Yes, the practice has changed, but the principle continues. The ceremonial law is the same. Think on this. The ceremonial law guided the worship of the nation of Israel, most clearly seen in sacrifices. Now, do we make sacrifices now? Of course not. Christ is our sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. His life and death bring an end to the sacrificial system, but the principle continues. Christ is our sacrifice, and now we are to offer up not a sacrifice of animals, but a sacrifice of praise and worship and service. So the practice changes, abrogated, the principle continues. But that's not true when it comes to the moral law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, reflect the very character of God himself. And therefore they are permanent. They are perpetual. They cannot pass away. Even in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, when law will be perfectly adhered to, there will still be this law. It will remain forever and ever. The moral law, the Ten Commandments. That is a major standard of righteousness that Christ is concerned with in this sermon. Just look at chapter 5, verse 21. He's going to exegete the sixth commandment for us. 
Chapter 5, verse 27, he's going to exegete the seventh commandment. Verse 31, he'll exegete the seventh commandment again. Verse 33, the ninth commandment, and so on. Our Lord says, I've come to fulfill. I've come to show you the true, fullest meaning of the law of God. I've come to reveal to you both in my life and by my teaching what the standard of kingdom righteousness is, both for entry into the kingdom and then for subsequent conduct. He's going to restate the fullness of the law of God. Think on this. Some Jews thought they were righteous by what they did. They thought they were righteous according to the law. Mark 10, verse 17, the rich young man, we read this, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, verse 19, you know the commandments. Uh, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He left out, by the way, do not covet. And the remarkable reply comes back from this young man. He said, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Wow. What a statement of pride. Arrogance. But you see what's happened. The Jews have rewritten the law of God so that it deals only with mere externals and not with the heart. And the one commandment that our Lord left out, coveting, is principally what a matter of the heart. Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor. We read, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Can you imagine anyone seriously thinking they could be right with God by keeping the law? It's an astonishing claim. Why did he think so? Mark 7 tells us. Our Lord criticizes the scribes and Pharisees. He said, laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. There we see, do we not, both legalism and this anti-law, anti-nomianism present in the religion of the day. Laying aside the command of God... They hated God's law, actually. And the legalism, they held to the traditions of men. They set aside what God demanded of them, replaced it with their own demands, which they thought were attainable, and thus they could be right with God through what they did. That's why Christ would call them hypocrites. Because they devalued the law of God replaced it with their own standard of attainable righteousness. And moreover, the scribes and the Pharisees had done what? They had taught others the same. It's not surprising to us that early on in his ministry, Christ now comes and says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it, to fill it up, to its greatest and fullest meaning. In fact, I've come to reveal to you its original meaning and sense. How's he going to do that? Through a life of perfect 
law-keeping. Through a death of perfect law-keeping. Through teaching the very likes of which we have before us now, revealing unto God's people the full significance of the law of God. Re-establishing, you see, the standard of righteousness that was necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's what he says in verse 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We can't begin to understand the bomb that our Lord just dropped in the Sermon on the Mount. Because everyone thought the scribes and the Pharisees were saved and were upright and were righteous before God because of their scrupulousness in keeping not actually the law of God, but their own law. Everyone thought the scribes and Pharisees were righteous before God. But Jesus now says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom entry rests on a righteousness greater than that possessed by these people, the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, friends, it's the same message our Lord's giving to us also. You, dear friend, here today, you need a righteousness that exceeds, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You need a righteousness that exceeds even the righteousness of those who are viewed by men as righteous. That could be the religious so-called righteous, who love to boast in their achievements and glory in their own achievements, who, chapter 6, verse 1, practice their righteousness before men. Or it could be the secular righteous, whose society has determined are upright because of their stand and their activism for certain causes. Those kinds of righteousness attributed to you by mere men will not allow you to stand before God. There is only one way to be right with God and stand before him righteously, and it's this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. The only way to be right with God is to have faith in this one who did not abolish, but perfectly fulfilled in life, in death, and in resurrection, the law of God. Friends, I want to say to you that's good news for sinners here today. That's good news for sinners. Do you struggle, dear friend, with the sense of your own sin? The weight, the burden of past sin, perhaps even the weight and burden of present sin. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish, I came to keep the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came to do it for you. Perhaps there are some here today, even Christians, who don't actually struggle with their sin. 
Perhaps you're here generally unaware of your own sin. Uh, You're more bothered about other people's sin than you are your own. The message to you is the same. Your righteousness will not avail before God, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ will. Saving righteousness is not produced by us, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of Scripture is plain. All have sinned. All have broken the law of God. Whatever righteousness we can muster of our own strength is excessively imperfect. It's rotten to the core. And that righteousness, if you're resting on it, friend, will not allow you to stand before God on the last day. You need a greater righteousness than that. Even a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. That's why Christ says, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I've come to keep God's word, his demand, perfectly. Think on this. All of Christ's external actions cry out, righteous. Think on this, even more remarkable, all his internal actions, all his internal emotions and thoughts cry out righteous. Internally, externally, there is none like the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in righteousness. No sin, no blame, no unrighteousness in the Savior Jesus Christ. His private life and thoughts mirrored the perfection of his external actions. He had no sin. Even on the cross, Christ fulfilled the law by taking the burden and the curse and the penalties of a law which had been broken by us and not him. Friends, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, not by ending it, but by keeping it. Hear that again. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, not by ending its rule, but by keeping its rule. To enter the kingdom of heaven, friends, you need a righteousness which exceeds the best man-made righteousness. And the righteousness of Christ is on offer for you here today, if you will have it. If you believe in Christ, the scripture says this, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The great transaction, our sins imputed to the Lord, his righteousness imputed to us. And that, friends, is a righteousness which will allow you to stand before God. It's a righteousness which abides. It's a righteousness which really counts for something in this life and in the life to come. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way. Let's be clear. 
It's the only way and there is no other to receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that saving, justifying righteousness that is granted to us purely by the grace of God and through faith in Christ produces in the Christian, at least in the sincere Christian, practiced righteousness. Saving faith produces works. Saving faith gives the fruit of righteous living. Our Lord has much to say about this, both in his example and in his teaching. Now, we want to be careful here, because I'd have to say, I won't be dogmatic on this, but as you look at the church today, the concept of the law of God is probably at an all-time low in the history of the church. Even in Reformed churches, certainly in broadly evangelical churches, mention of the law and the necessity to keep it, you won't be able to count to three before the word legalist has been raised. It's lazy thinking to label people who say you should keep the law of God a legalist. It's lazy. It's thoughtless. Remember legalism, adding to the law of God, adding to God's requirement, which as we saw in Mark chapter 7, always involves taking away from the law of God. So legalism and lawlessness, antinomianism, are two sides of the same coin. Legalists love their own law because they hate actually the law of God, very clearly. Now it is possible to be a legalist. It's very possible, in fact, we're wired to be legalists, each one of us. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, that's the testimony of Scripture. We are all wired to attempt to produce a righteousness before God. And so I wonder whether today we can examine ourselves with respect to the issue of righteousness and of law-keeping. I wonder if what we're seeing here reflects any of our own thinking here today, perhaps even um, unconsciously. Because the truth is this, friends, we can be exceedingly lazy in the application of the law to ourselves, but exceedingly zealous in our application of the law to everyone else. And that's really the heart of legalism and the heart of antinomianism. We don't need to go too far in the text for us to consider our own attitude to Jesus and his righteousness in the law. Chapter 5, verse 21. Do you consider your unjust anger to be akin to murder? Because Jesus does. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 27. He talks about lust. Do you operate with a principle, look, but don't touch. Chapter 5, verse 38, are you happy to forgive some, but retaliate to others? Verse 43, are you happy to love some, but to hate others? Chapter 6, verse 1, do you love to be seen doing good works and practicing your righteousness before men? 
chapter 7, verse 15, all in the same sermon. Are you bearing fruit worthy of righteousness? Or are you producing bad fruit in your life? Are you receptive to the call to worship, the call to obedience, the call to zeal for righteousness? When you hear a command or an imperative from the pulpit or from a friend or your husband or your wife that you should do something, do you immediately recoil when you hear that command? Are you happier to hear what Christ has done for you rather than what he calls you to do in obedience? These are all real realities for the Christian. Struggles perhaps in many of us. Our Lord in this sermon and at this very point in the text is calling each one of us to an earnest look at our lives. A sincere, honest, and earnest look at our own lives. Where am I with respect to the law of God? Do I view righteousness and adherence to the law of God as Jesus, my Lord and Savior, viewed it. If not, friends, the challenge today is you need to change, not Jesus. We need to change, not our Lord, because he's not going to, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our Lord has some pretty serious words for those within the kingdom but who denigrate the practice of righteousness. Let me say that again. He has some serious words for those who are in the sphere of the kingdom, by faith, but denigrate the practice of righteousness. Verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Conversely, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To disregard the law of God in part or in whole and to teach others the same either by example or precept will lead to you, dear friend, being called the least in the kingdom of heaven. That's a troubling statement, isn't it? It's a hard one. Because we all think when we get to heaven, we're all going to be equal. We'll all have the same status, all of the same honor. Scripture doesn't bear witness to that reality. In fact, it bears the opposite witness. There are those in the kingdom saved who will be called least, and there are those in the kingdom who will be called great. One theologian on this passage writes this, All Although all is of grace, and nothing whatever is earned by the citizen of the kingdom, yet his rank or position in that kingdom will depend on and be commensurate with his respect for God's holy law. His rank or position in that kingdom will depend on and be commensurate with his respect for God's holy law. We like that idea of rank, position, respect, or honor in the kingdom. Christ says it here. There is the least, 
There is the great. It's very clear. Christ tells us we will be called least in the kingdom of our kingdom of heaven because we denigrate the law of God and the standard of righteousness. Or we will be great in the kingdom of heaven, not greatest, it doesn't say that. It says great because of our love for the law of God. And we know this reality in time, don't we? We know this reality in time. We ought not to think, and, and reality bears this out, that the Christian, the while of the household of faith, who, who denigrates the law of God, who doesn't live a life of great obedience and zeal for the Lord, do you think much of such a person? You don't. Of course you don't. Then you look at the person who is an example of godliness. Uh, both by their teaching of mouth and their example, they live for the Lord. We think much of them, don't we? Scripture also says that there is an eternal aspect to this idea of reward. Matthew 10, verse 41. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Some distinction of reward. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Again, verse 14 of the same passage. Uh, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved. Some are rewarded, some suffer loss. Uh, We could go on, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each according to his deeds. Well, salvation is most assuredly through faith in Christ. And by the grace of God, Scripture is also clear. Those that love the law of God and practice it will be granted high status in the kingdom, both now and eternally. And those who don't love the law of God and don't seek to practice it zealously will, as our Lord says here, be called least in the kingdom. Friends, we bring this to an end. Let's ask ourselves the question, have we understood Jesus? Have we understood the law? Have we understood the gospel of Christ? To be saved, let us be clear, is to rest, to receive, to stand only upon Jesus Christ, to have faith in him, in his perfect righteousness. It is through faith in Christ that our sins are removed and that perfect righteousness is granted unto us. Friends, there's no other salvation deal available. That's the one. Take it or leave it. We're called by this righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom to look afresh upon our Lord and see in him all the treasures of righteousness. No lack in him. So that those who have faith in him, God looks upon them and sees no lack in them also. And if that's true of you, dear friend, 
that you lack nothing before God in a standing of righteousness that ought to, in your life, produce works of righteousness. Practical righteousness. The duty upon us to obey the law of God remains. We're not called to add to the law of God. We're not called to take away from the law of God. Because, dear friends, much, both now and eternally, rests upon understanding the law, understanding our Lord's relationship to the law, and understanding our relationship to the law. So let's seek humbly, humbly to understand what our Lord is saying in what is frankly an uncomfortable text for us to hear. A buckle up, I'd say there's plenty of discomfort in the coming weeks and plenty of comfort. The requirement to keep perfectly the law, surely does it not drive us to Christ? When we look at the word and say we have not kept the law of God, not in any way, shape or form, to whom shall we turn? We'll turn to the one who is the words of eternal life, the righteousness necessary for eternal life, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us and give us ears to hear. As we are challenged by your word, may we now, Lord God, soften our hearts, soften our necks, that, Father, your word might sink down into our hearts. Lord, how we need your spirit. We would not resist your spirit this day. Give us grace. Give us love for our Lord, and bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.